Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I am so pleased to welcome my guest back to the show for another encore performance. Dr. Lisa Lowry is a native of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and a graduate of Ottawa Hills High School. She attended Michigan State University, receiving her Bachelor of Science degree in microbiology with honors. Dr. Lowry then went on to receive her medical degree from the University of Michigan Medical School. And after medical school, she completed a combined internal medicine and pediatric residency program at Spectrum Health Butterworth Michigan State University Grand Rapids campus. Her desire to work with young people led her to complete a subspecialty research fellowship in adolescent medicine at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Her research during her fellowship concentrated on sexually transmitted diseases and reproductive health. While at the John Hopkins, she obtained a Master's of Public Health in the Department of Population and Family Health Sciences with a Certificate of Concentration in Maternal and Child Health. Currently, Dr. Lowry is an Adolescent Medicine Specialist at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids. She has been on faculty since July of 2004. Dr. Lowry also serves as Adolescent Medicine Section Chief and an Associate Program Director for the Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Residency Program at Michigan State University, Grand Rapids Campus. She is an Associate Professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, Department of Pediatrics. And in April of 2020, she started at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine as the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Cultural Initiatives. In December of 2016, she obtained her CPE Certified Physician Executive from the American Association for Physician Leadership. She is the President of West Michigan Medical Society National Medical Association and serves on the Grand Rapids Urban League Board of Directors and the Michigan Eating Disorders Alliance Board. In the summer of 2018, She started serving on the Cherry Health Foundation Board and the Kent County Community Health Advisory Committee. This is one very busy woman, and I am so grateful that she made time for us today. Please sit back and enjoy the conversation with Dr. Lowry. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I am well today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I want to thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. I I've been doing it long enough. Now I get to have a few encores. And so I was delighted that you agreed to do this again. Well, thank you. And thank you for the invitation and congratulations on doing it long (laughs) enough. You have some longevity here. Well, they said the average length of duration of a podcast is seven episodes. So I'm about 77 in. So I'm pleased. All right. So 10, 10 times already. Look exactly. Exactly. Well, just to refresh folks' minds, um, you are an adolescent medicine specialist and you also wear the title of Assistant Dean for Diversity and Culture at, at Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine, my alma mater. And I just wondered if you could just catch us up about you know, where you are in your career. Yes. So I'm really enjoying my career now. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed it. I still am a clinician. I see adolescent patients because adolescent medicine is a required elective. We always have learners on, which is a great, great thing. I love when, especially the resident, um, because the residents have to be on the rotation. Most of the medical students elect to come, but the, the when they kind of say, you know what, I I like I think I like taking care of teenagers, or you know, this wasn't as bad as I thought, and so I love that. So I'm still a clinician half time and do some administrative things with as section chief of adolescent and young adult medicine at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. But I also really am enjoying my role as assistant dean for diversity and cultural initiatives 
at Michigan State College of Human Medicine. I've been in this role since April of 2020. I always joke and say there's nothing like starting a new job in the middle of a pandemic about two weeks after everything shuts down. Um, and it's it's very interesting. It's 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 thriving and, and, and challenging in a new way. I'm here in Grand Rapids and work with Dr. Wanda Lipscomb um, at CHM, and we are just really continuing to work on things of trying to improve the learning environment here. And we've I've developed a DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion grand round series, monthly series. Um, I'm working on some of the diversity uh, committees within CHM. I've had some opportunities also to develop some curriculum and work and collaborate and looking at developing a research project and faculty development. I've been doing, a, I will say, a lot of work around faculty development and meeting with a lot of our, what they call the faculty fellows, which are really our main lead, lead teachers of our first and second years. And so I've um, been in, in interacting with them and engaging them. It's just been, it's been good overall. It's, it's, it's nice when you have the opportunity to pursue another passion. And so work around diversity, equity, inclusion has always kind of been a passion of mine, whether just because I identify as an African-American woman um, and that, and we're often asked to do that, but but also being able to have conversations. And if anything, what 2020 taught us is that we need to have more conversations um, and really hopefully empowering people to be able to have those conversations. I always tell people, I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself someone who's passionate about this and maybe just a little further further along the journey than others. I love that. It sounds like you're very busy. <laughs> well, I am busy. I talked to someone. Actually, I sent an email today. Someone respond, asked about something going on about sex trafficking. And I responded to the email. And then it was about four of us on the email. And they said, at least the Laurie has her hands in almost everything. And I'm like, not everything. But I think if, if you, and I'm trying to be mindful of that, but I think if you enjoy it, and you and you work with people who say and you say, look, this is how much I can give, or I'm really to support, or sometimes it's really just about the connections, making connections. Cause I feel like so often there's so much good work being done, but no one knows what everybody's doing. I mean, because you know, we have the big entity of Michigan State and College of Human Medicine, and then we have this huge entity of Spectrum Health. And even though that Grand Rapids is one of the largest campuses for our medical students. I think a lot of times we don't know all that's going on at either entity. So um, it's been fun. Busy, but busy, but good. I always say. Right, right. Well, and, you know, I I, honestly, that's why I did this podcast, because one, I think there's brilliant people out there like you and everybody should hear you. And so, you know, I can bring you to right now about 300 downloads an episode. So you got an audience of about 300. So welcome to the show. So you work a lot with med students and residents and, you know, they're kind of, you know, fresh and excited, probably overwhelmed. What are you hoping for this next generation of physicians? You know, one of the things that I hope that I instill in medical students and residents is that at the end of the day, I say, You may hear me make, I may complain about certain things, but at the end of the day, medicine is still a great career. It's a great calling. We get to interact in people's lives and hopefully make a a difference. I think one of the things that I see with a lot of our young people, and and, and I've probably had it too, is this passion for change and justice and all these things. And I always kind of tell them, I said, please continue that passion. However, I always tell them, you're a medical student, you're a resident, put those priorities, keep those priorities. But I think to really continue to know that, you know, this is a valued calling. And, and, and it's very interesting, as I was thinking about the questions, we have such access to technology today. So it'll be interesting to see five, 10 years from now, what how technology will so greatly impact patient care. I mean, we've seen it already. I mean, telemedicine, you know, 
six years ago, or you would be telling me, yeah, you will be seeing your ADHD visits from in their car. The most of them are sitting in their car and, and you're sitting at that and, and, and you're sitting at the office and there's this whole thought about, well, it's a change in mind shift. And so I, I hope they, they, they um, continue that passion and love. One of the things I think this generation, and I hate to say the young, the young folks are doing that they're really, a lot of them are really in tune to their own wellness and how wellness is such a priority. And you and I were from that age of no duty hour restrictions, you know, call everything, whatever it was. And I don't know how we learned we did it. We at some point thought that was the way it should be done. But I really think they, this this, this younger generation, I will say, are really attuned to their, I'm going to be a provider, but I'm also going to do all these other things and be well. And so I hope that they continue to do that and they can continue to move us towards having those conversations. I mean, even me, I'm the wellness champion for our MedPeds program. And just- Of course I mean, you are. <laughs> of course I am. Yeah. You, you like, didn't have enough to do. <laughs> Not that I have enough to do. Um, but yeah, just to have those sitting, have those conversations. And sometimes, even though we have curriculum, it's just, hey, how's everybody doing? You know, checking in. And then I always have to check in on myself. Um, I have this thing when I meet with my mentees. We were talking before we started um, when I'm about mentors and one of my mentors, but I always start my mentor meeting. Oh now, most of the time, say, how you doing? And when is your next vacation? Mm-hmm. And I never forget about a year or so ago. My pro- well, I would say longer than that because we were actually traveling back then. So it was probably pre, as we go pre-pandemic, um, use that colloquialism. One of my mentees says, Dr. Lyra, when is your next vacation? When are you leaving? And I was like, well... I'm booking it like, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, but we're really having, the, having those conversations. So I think making ourselves accountable. So Anyway, that's what I hope, and 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 I still have hope for our profession, even though we're in a we're in a little bumpy spot right now with this whole pandemic and healthcare and all that. But. Walk in the walk, yeah. I just recently had a conversation and did a podcast with um, Dr. Scott Grant, who's in Detroit, and I've repeated this multiple times because I loved what he said. He said. As I asked about, you know, work-life balance because he's a hospitalist and he's doing a podcast for dads called Docs to Dads. And I said, how do you balance? Because he's got little kids. And he said, I think about it like juggling. Some of the balls are rubber and some are glass. And I just try and keep the glass ones in the air. And I was like, that is such a brilliant metaphor. So, it is. Yeah. So. I like um, that. I don't know if I had permission to share it, but I've shared it a lot now. <laughs> well, it's a little late now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pass it on. So I, like I want to dive in a little bit into your EDI work and kind of this, it's kind of an awakening, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, I think that people of color, like this isn't new for you, but for people that are not identified that way, you know, there's this kind of discussion now about longstanding structural racism. And and I think a lot of institutions like Michigan State are embarking on this work. And it's a start, but, and there's just years and years of this to undo. I mean, you know, like uh, we're talking centuries now, right? And so where do you start? I mean, you know, for anybody who's listening, where do you start just in your own setting? I mean, what's the what's the go point? So I always acknowledge the fact that this could be overwhelming. And I always say kind of get in, I use a get in where you fit in and start somewhere. Maybe it's starting with, for some people, it's just starting with their own awareness. For some people, it's being uncomfortable and knowing that this is a, being aware. I always say you, maybe it's just, you and seeing, okay, where do my own biases lie? Where, where do I, do I have biases? Well, first of all, we all have biases. You know, I always use the thing saying, and it's not my saying, I've read, and it's common. You have a brain, you have bias. So we all have bias. And so kind of being that, that awareness. But I think what happens is when you start doing this work, then you, we're naturally fixers, especially in the healthcare profession where do I start to make change? 
And I say start with your own sphere, you know, whether it's your own clinic, your own family, your own educational setting, where can I put these things in? And I think the the hard overwhelming part is people, number one, don't know where to start. Number two, they, they're they afraid to say the wrong thing. And I've actually had conversations with people who kind of have I've known for years and have reached out to me and said, Lisa, I don't know where to start. And, you know, you might not be able to start at, you know, Abraham Kendi's anti-racism book. You know, that might be too much for you then. But maybe there's a book I have that someone recommended to me. I think it was called 35 Dumb Things Well-Intended People Say. And maybe start there, but you got to start somewhere. And for you, it might be saying, hey, I just need to reach out to fill in the blank and have those conversations and figure out where I need to start. For other people, and I always say this, you might be a little further along the journey. Maybe it's now I'm aware, now I'm in a space, or I'm at the table where I can be a voice for people who aren't at the table. And I think that's what's really important also. Um, if you're in, lead, we're all leaders, but if you're in a significant leadership position, where where do we have, where do we start? I think one of the big things and one of the challenges for institutions, um, and I'll say Spectrum Health, Michigan State, is that there's now this requirement, and I'll use requirement in air quotes, that we have to, like for the state of Michigan, you know, the providers have to do unconscious bias, implicit bias training. The tension with that is that, and this is my own concern or bias about this, is we can't do the checkbox. So I'll use this example. I was having a conversation with a group and I won't share who the group was. It was a small group and we were going to just kind of discuss the issues in this section. And a little bit of it was going to talk just about bias. And one of the persons said, one person said, well, you know, I've done that unconscious bias training that we offer, so I'm good. And I said, yeah, that's great. And I use the analogy, I'm a pediatrician at heart. And this work is like immunization. We met, we need boosters, <laughs> you know? And to me, hopefully, it's lifelong learning. Now, I'm also not the person who knows, and, and, I'm, not, and I'm not in the space to say that you're going to go to an unconscious bias training, and you're going to, your eyes are going to be up, and you're just going to commit to this. There's going to be, you know, like everybody bell-shaped curve. There's going to be everybody that's going to commit to this. Some people are going to, yep, I've done it. Give me my CMEs. I'm going to move on. But hopefully we get the majority of the people to say, okay, I'm a little more self-aware. I'm going to make some changes. And I, it might be just some little changes. And so I think that's where you where where you begin. I think when we talked about technology, there's a ton of resources out there. You know, there's podcasts. There's you know, and there's institutional resources, you know, um, there's a ton of stuff out there, almost to the point you can actually be overwhelmed. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, where I always say, so I always kind of go back to kind of where we started. Begin with your own little sphere and your sphere might just be you right now. It might be that person in the mirror and get in where you fit in. I, yeah, it sort of comes to mind, sort of the Nike swooshed, like just do it. <laughs> just do it. Yeah. Just do it, whatever that do it looks like. Well, and if you're thinking about your clinic setting, and, and I'm thinking now about pediatrics, you know, what does discrimination and oppression look like for our teens? You know, the teens of color, our LGBTQ kids, our immigrant kids, are we seeing it clearly enough? I think we see it. I just don't think we call it and identify it. You know, we are supposed to be looking at social determinants of health. And so we see it. And so in pediatrics, it can be, I can't get, I can't get my child to the appointment. I don't have access to get to the appointment. And we, especially if we deal with a lot of populations that transportation acts, I can't take a half day off work and and, and come to a doctor's appointment. You know, so how do we, you know, there's, I've heard Deborah, Dr. Deborah for Holden speak, and she talks about the upstream and downstream and Dr. Kamara Jones, the upstream and downstream. So one of the fixes is, okay, how do we provide transportation to the appointment? That's one fix. We have some grant funding, even our practice, where we can help people get to their appointment. The other, the other fix, and I don't have that, the capability of doing this myself, but how do we fix the transportation system, yeah, you know, or how do, yeah, how do we fix sustainable livable wages? 
And, and, you know, and I laugh and I, and I said, what, what we've done with COVID and housing and, and shortages, we've actually moved the needle a little bit, um, but not, we're definitely not where we're supposed to be. And so we see it. So when we talk about our LGBTQIA plus community, that's another community that has that, all those things of transportation access, just the feeling that I walk into a space and I am affirmed that someone just doesn't say, hi, and what is your name? And, you know, when I look at the paperwork, is it binary, he, she, all those things. Now, some of us, if we're in smaller practices, we can change that. You can easily change our forms. And I know bigger and larger institutions are working at that. Just name. What is your name? And when I actually talk to people about this, and this is one of the things I will say about caring for LGBTQIA plus patients. It may it doesn't start with Dr. Lowry in the room six. It actually starts with my amazing registration person. It starts with, you know, do we have signs up that show that we're affirming? Could it be just a, a, a progressive flag? Things like that. Has my staff done training in around, you know, asking people for their pronouns and things like that? Those are the things. And the problem is, and I'm working, I'm on a, our Grand Rapids LGBTQIA health consortium, but just getting a list of providers who we feel that they're affirming to me and, and, and my family. And so that's a way we could be open to our patients. And it's not necessarily, and it's, it's kind of easy. Those are some easy steps. There's things, there's some modules out there where you can sit at a staff meeting and train and have these conversations. You can bring people in. Again, I will say I have been in this situation personally and professionally where I've had conversations with medical staff um, who said, you know what, I just don't get this. This is not how it was raised. Um, I don't understand this. And I go back, I go, can you room the patient? Can you ask them their name and then take and put them in and treat them like any other patient? And then the answer was like, yes. I said, well, that's what I need you to do. I don't, you know... Um, and then, and so it, I've been in both places as a leader, trying to have that conversation and make sure my staff is has some understanding and hopefully moving them along their journey, but also ensuring that my patients are feeling welcome. And then um, here in Grand Rapids at, at our adolescent young adult medicine, we are actually the um, one of the largest homes um, work with Bethany Christian Services and Samaritas. And we see some of our undocumented minors we're actually seeing an increase in our um, uh, refugees from Afghanistan. I will say my my amazing PA, Jill Tallman, is uh, a great advocate. And she has kind of taken that fight, if I use fight lead role around, um, she's actually bilingual um, and speaks Spanish. And so she's, and so she's also really taken that lead role um, working with our, our immigrant and refugee population. And then that's a whole nother thing when you think about trauma, language barrier, all those things. And then how would you feel if you got taken from Michigan and put in and you put in a whole nother country and you don't know the language or anything? So um, and some of them, you know, the ones we see a lot of the unaccompanied minors, they're not here with family and they're here and and they're trying to get adjusted. And then the, the we don't do this, but the organization, you know, Bethany's trying to get them connected with their families. So that, that's just a whole um, different kind of thing that we have to be aware of. And, you know, and sometimes, fortunately, is we see the kids or see the young people and then they kind of trust us and then they leave and say, but what I really wanted to say is this. And they keep coming back and. Um, and then we hear, you know, some trauma stories and things like that. And we really try to do, you know, trauma-informed care, but it's it's a lot, you know. And I think that's why a lot of provide. I'm 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 fortunate that I in my practice have time to take care of patients, and that and that's one of our passions. But I also it is not lost on me that a lot of primary care doctors, there's no way you can do that visit in 15 minutes, right? <laughs> so, you have to, well, you said a couple things that are so brilliant, but are so simple, like just see me walk in my shoes or imagine being in my shoes. And, you know, I was thinking about some kids that I've seen that were refugee kids. We saw them in our practice as well. And I'm like, oh my God, these are babies. 
you know, you've got five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids plucked from their families in in their in temporary foster homes with people that don't speak the language. And these are kids. And I one night had I was on call and somebody called and it was from Bethany, I think, and just said, this little girl is crying and is there something you could prescribe for her? I'm like, she is four years old. She is traumatized. She can't, you know, of course she can't sleep. And I'm like, no, that that's not, that's not the problem. So you're talking about being emotional containers to holding their pain and maybe not fixing it, but just being with people is a step, right? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, and that's one of the things that I, the hard part about the job, and I'm very fortunate that I have a team that we, you know, sometimes we, you can hear us laughing and joking, but it's also that way of we can just decompress, you know, or my, our families. And when we talk about those things, and I don't need to go, I don't go home and tell everything, but I have that, say, you know, that safety net of saying. And I was telling my learn, the learners, we talked about this, I said, because some of the learners, we do have some really sad cases and they go, oh my gosh, Lisa, how do you deal with this? And I said, it should get to you. When it stops getting to you, then you go, I was using, go hang up your cleat. I said, these are hard cases and you have to, you know, unpack them and then kind of, you know, and deal with them. And then a lot of times it's like some of the learners, they look at me and say, what are you going to do? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and then you know, I go into the, they said, what do you mean? I said, Based on what you told me, I use the room. I said, I'm going to maybe have to go in and read the room. And I'm very honest with them. I said, they said, and one looked at me and said, I don't know yet. Let's, and we have a tentative plan, but let's go in and throw the, you know. And I think that that's also liberating for them because I think sometimes for us, you know, we're the attendings. We suppose know all. Yeah. My mentor, Dr. Schatz, he used to joke, the wise man knoweth not all, but where to look it up is. <laughs> <laughs> Where to Google it now, right? And well, now we have Google, you know, we Google right. it. And, and you, you can know, do it or, at your fingertips. Yeah. And I was like, some stuff you don't, you know, and, and some stuff you're just like, I don't know. Well, and <laughs> you, you know, but, but, but when we talk about that, those are so many layers. And like you said, in your practice, you're going to address, you're going to see the patient, but you know, how you're going to address certain things with this a refugee kid versus an LGBTQI kid versus, you know, urban core versus suburban. And one of the, one of the things I tell my learners is dysfunction knows no zip code. So just, you know, urban versus suburban, they have different problems. They all have same problems. I am, this is an aside, it made me think of something. So Dr. Schatz, we always had resident um, learners watch movies and videos. And so there's one movie I continue to still have them watch. And the funny thing is I watched it as a fellow and it's uh, called uh, Lost Children's of Rockville County. And it's um, about the syphilis outbreak um, probably like 20, 25 years ago. And I have them watch that. And I tell them, I said, now it's dated, but I want you to watch it with the context. And so many of them said, well, wow, you can just pluck it and put it here. And I said, the difference between back then and then, they didn't have social media and, the, and their eyes get big. And, but it's about an affluent community. And so many times, again, our biases come into place and we're like, oh, they're from, fill in the blank, you know, zip code. And they're fine. Mm-hmm. I still tell them to ask the drug, sex, rock, roll, and hip hop questions. <laughs> I just so. did a, a really great podcast um, with Dr. Kofi Essel from Washington, D.C. And he works a lot in the space of food insecurity. And that was something he clearly said was you have to ask, you know, you can't make assumptions that the person sitting in front of you who is well-dressed isn't hungry because, you know, they're, they're putting their best foot forward. They don't want you to see their shame. The other thing that he said, it made me think of something you said previously was during COVID, we figured out how to feed people. I mean, some of it was charitable donations, but we did some federal things to make dollars available to feed people. And so this upstream, we can do it. You just kind of got to want to. And, you know, the, the people that are making those decisions, you know, have to be able to see that. I mean, it, that's a whole nother layer of politics, right? <laughs> we can't even unpack that. Well, one of my most humbling moments in medicine was probably about five years ago now, might have been a little longer, 
the patient she would come in, she was an older teenager, so maybe like 18, 19, would come in with her mom, would come in with her little son, come, how are things? Great. We will follow her for her for their blood pressure, blah, 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 blah. And I'm, and this isn't HIPAA because it ended up being on the news. I didn't know they were homeless and living in a shelter until I saw them on the news. And I, and so I just sit there and I'm go, and I was like, so two weeks later, I mean, and again, that's very humbling because you think you're Dr. Lowry, I'm great. I have this great rapport with family, but to, to best foot forward. So I followed, you know, I talked to the, the family a few weeks later. They just happened to come in. I said, hey, are you on TV? And they were like, we just didn't want to, we just didn't tell people. And then my heart was broken. And you talk about feeding people and upstream, downstream, we were able to get foundation support. And I will say my amazing social worker, Sarah Lickis, uh, drives this. But we get gift cards and we get Meyer gift cards. And you are amazed how many families we were able to, families, we, we when we ask about insecurity, you know, we're, we can go, look, here's a gift card to go get some food or get some gas. And it's not uncommon that a patient will call ahead of time and say, hey, Dr. Lauer, they'll go, I only want to talk to Dr. Lauer. I only want to talk to Jill or Dr. Truth. Like it's us. And I'm like, they're like can, we get, can we get those gift cards? And I'm like, yes. And we're fortunate to have foundation support to do that. But you, but again, that's a down, you know, that's at the, and I'm, I'm blessed and fortunate that they feel comfortable enough. But how many times, you know, we, we're, we're missing food insecurity. And there's a great podcast. I think it's it might be a podcast or might be an article. I'm blanking that we have our we have a um, a health disparities racism health disparities elective for medical students. It's myself, Dr. Jennifer Edwards Johnson, and Elizabeth Lyons. But one of the modules or one of the readings is about food insecurity, and one of the things we talk about is food insecurity in rural patients. Yeah. And I will tell them, and we have these discussions, and I will say my eyes were open because I was like. How could you be in my mind? I was like, how could you be food insecure? And you're right, you grow food. And the thought is our food, you're in rural, but we don't think about not everybody. Rural is not always farm country. If I'm growing corn that I can't eat, it doesn't help me. And then the distance, you know, the next, you know, store is 15 minutes away. And so, and there's actually some literature that's saying some of our rural families have more, and I hate to term food deserts, but food deserts than some of our urban, because at least some of our agents can go to the corner store and get food. It might not be the best, healthiest food. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, again, you just have to be able to see people. And I love what you said about sometimes it's hard for you. And that's when I hear that wellness piece of, I got to step back. I got to take a deep breath attend to what's going on with me, modeling that for your, you know, your learners, which is amazing. I remember coming out of a room probably more than once after hearing, you know, just unbearable stories and like sliding to the floor, literally tears in my eyes. And, you know, my staff are like, are you okay? I'm like, no, (laughs) I just need to take a minute here. This is just too heartbreaking, you know, and then sort of, you know, you pick yourself up and and you move on, but you can't help that, you know, it's not like we have like a force field around us that is keeping pain away. And, you know, how do you be that container and, and, and then still, you know, not fall apart? And sometimes you do fall apart, right? Yeah. And, and I, like I said, I, I, about several months ago, I was in the room and the patient started crying. My learner started crying and I'm tearing up and, and my learner afterwards, and it was it was actually kind of a sharing moment, and we all and it was sharing, and it was cathartic. We talked about some loss in our lives, and I shared, the learner shared. I mean, the res, the patient shared, and I shared, and I felt like, and I was like, sweetie, it's okay not to get over things. I'm over twice your age, and I'm so, and my I saw my learner over there tearing up, and later on we were talking. I said, you know, let's talk, and my learner said. I haven't cried on any rotation until now. I'm a second-year <laughs> resident. I've been on, you know, intensive care, all these rotations. I come on adolescent medicine, I cry. And I, and again, I use the analogy. It's okay. Um, but I also tried to emulate. It's okay to be vulnerable. I tried. Now, you know, there's always things you can do better, but it's okay to share what you're comfortable with your patients. Be, be human. 
be human. Human, you know. Just I, acknowledge I don't, it. I don't wear a white coat, but when we put the stethoscope on, it's you're still provider. You know, you're still a human. I mean, it's a little um, bit of a hero's tool, maybe having that, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, I agreed. Well, talking about kind of discomfort and you know that those those moments in the room. Let's talk about the talk. Uh-huh. And, yeah. And and what does that mean for primarily African American culture? And what do we need to know about the talk? Do we talk about the talk? I mean, what what do you think? So yeah, so starting at the talk we're talking about to your podcast listeners is not about the birds and the bees. It's actually an article that came out about three, two or three years ago. Um, and it was really having the conversation um about racism. Um, I always call it driving my black and discrimination. And it was a really good article that really talked about how do we as providers have the talk. And when I do a session, I do a session at the beginning of the of the beginning with interns, and that's one of the articles that I re- have them read. And the conversation always goes to but Dr. Lowry, how do I as a person of not African-American, not Black American, whatever, have that conversation. And I said, well, first of all, now you're aware of it. Because these are conversations, like you said, with Trayvon Martin and the Mike Browns and the um, George Floyds, that we have had the conversation in our communities for years. And I challenge sometimes my my people, um, especially in 2020, I I was asked to kind of be in a lot of different conversations. And I said, I'm going to challenge a little bit for every person you kind of, if you're ever in a room with Black people, a bunch of people of color. And we see it also with our our Latino brothers as well. Ask them how many of them have been stopped or know someone has been stopped. And I said, I will pay, call me, I will give you $5 if it wasn't an over nine, if it's 10 people, if it's, if it's not nine of them. And, and, and I said, it's just something we talked about. My husband has been stopped. My ne- friends have been stopped. My, one of my nephews was stopped so many times driving his grandmother's little car that him and his mother would, um, they had a system that he would, if he was stopped, he would immediately go call her and put her on speakerphone. And so I think for, so then you go to how am I a person who, A, have, I'm just learning about this. I'm aware about this. I don't know how to bring it up. And so I kind of, and again, for listeners, everybody might say, well, I do it this way. This is how I, you know, does Lisa Lowry always have the talk now? I don't. And maybe I should. But but for my learners, when I'm having that conversation, I say, you kind of meet, you meet with everything, you meet the patient where you are, there are, and really kind of talk about, about safety. And you can feel free to bring it up if they're driving. Um, just like we talk about wear your seatbelt, wear your helmet, you know, do you drive? Are you in the car with friends who drive? Don't have friends who drink and drive. Don't be in the car with friends who drink and drive. And again, this is just my strategy. Um, and I maybe say, you know, one of the things, and you as a person, if you say, you know, I'm not of a, you know, not African-American or a minoritized community, maybe you might want to say, well, I just, one of the things that I've read about and, 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 and have to with my patients is making sure we always want you to get home safe. And then have you and your mom had the convert or your, your parents had the conversation about what to do if you ever get stopped? And I said, you can leave it there and, and let the patient respond. And that's kind of my ongoing strategy. Now, have I had that conversation with patients? I will say I've had it, but I will say I don't know. I don't necessarily always bring it up from that standpoint. Sometimes we've gotten into other conversations and things like that. And so I will say maybe that is something from my own standpoint, I need to be better about discussing with my patients and bringing it up. I saw a video and I wish I could think, maybe I'll have to look for it so I can put it in the show note. And it was not a long video, but it was parents talking with their children. And by the end of it, I mean, I'm like crying because I cannot believe these conversations. And, you know, it's like, how did I not know? But it's not my experience. But I mean, and, and you're thinking, you know, it's 2020. Like, seriously, you have at it, it boggles the mind. And I think that it, you know, that you talked about that discomfort, like, is it okay for, I'm not Black, is it okay for me to ask? And and not being afraid. And that, 
I think it kind of moves into our own discomfort with discomfort. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like, I don't like how this feels. It makes me like, am I doing it okay? But I think maybe we have to set, sit a bit in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I think if anything, like, I think if you come at it from not a lecture, a discussion point, or even come up with it as concern, then it's not, it's non-judgmental. And you're just having the conversation. You know, some things I talk to all my patients about is, and the other thing I, I tell my learners is to try, and this is, and again, I'm, I'm thinking this is probably I do not do enough. If you have the conversation with all your, your patients, then it just becomes, I'm having the conversation with all my patients. You know what? As far as safety, if you ever get stopped, these are the things that you need to do. Parents, have you had that conversation what to do? You know, if you ever get stopped, um, you know, what is those? Because then it becomes just, I don't want to say routine, but it becomes something. The more you do it, the more you come comfortable. Like when we said, well, it's taught, teach. The more you look at ears, the more comfortable you are looking at ears. And again, I will say that's something that I don't always do as far as having that conversation. But I do, you know, when I when I talk to the learners, I try to give them tools to empower them to be able to have the conversation. Well, let's talk about a couple of other tools and strategies, and that's bystander response and allyship. Can you break those down a little bit? Yeah. So, so allyship and bystander are really a lot of terms. It's been around for years and is often known as someone that you can turn to. Now there's more formal di- um, diagnosis, there's more formal definitions, but an ally is someone that will you can go to and sees you for you. I've used kind of some of the things we've been talking about and can have these conversations and can also help you process. Commonly used, these terms are commonly used, especially when we talk about areas of unconscious bias and microaggression. So ally is someone... I'm a victim of a microaggression. I can go to my ally, Dr. Jones, and have this conversation. And that ally can also help me debrief the conversation and hopefully develop some strategies. And so that's kind of simply put, that's kind of how I think of an ally. Um, An ally is also someone who has and is in the process of learning kind of where you can understand understand or empathize. Okay, I'm aware. I kind of, even though I've never experienced, you can fill it in this microaggression, fill in the bank of microaggression. I am willing to learn to understand, learn to how to address and be aware. And then, so there's also some action in that as of the person I am. Um, So for example, I consider myself an LGBTQIA plus ally. That's if I if I if I make it personal, it's some the person that I'm learning. I'm willing to stand up and 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 educate and and awareness. And so that's where I am. A bystander we also we often use when we talk about um, microaggressions and unconscious bias. And really, a bystander comes from that old from a scenario. Um, it was years ago where someone was attacked years ago, and no, everybody stood by and did nothing. And so really, when we talk about microaggressions and unconscious bias, bystander, bystander intervention is really more action. So I am going to, or am doing something. And so if you kind of look from the, on the journey, if, so for example, you and I are having a conversation, I commit a microaggression, that bystander intervenes. And now being a bystander and all of these are, there's a lot of emotions that are laid because the, the, the victim is having their own, you know, if you're a victim of microaggression, you would be processing that. And then the bystander really has to process, okay, where do I intervene? You know, do I intervene now? Do I intervene later? Do I intervene, you know, and then that intervention can look very different depending on the, the situation. So I've, and I've used this example very often when, and when I'm talking to learners and doing microaggression discussions, I keep misgendering you, you know, I, I don't, so you, for example, you may use they, them pronouns. I keep using she, her pronouns and I just keep misgendering. And I can see as a bystander, if I have bystander Smith over here, bystander Smith can say, if action, hey, Lisa, 
I've noticed that you are misgendering Leah. How I need you, you know, Leah's pronouns are they, them. I need you to respect that. That's very active at the time. The other way is that I may see you feel, especially if there's a power dynamic, and we know in medicine, there's always a lot of hierarchy. I may feel not as the as the um, intervener. I may not feel comfortable right now, but maybe I'll come as the bystander intervener. I'll come up later and say, hey, Leah, I noticed that Lisa kept misgendering. I just wanted to let you know, I'm here for you. I think that's, you know, how, how can I support you? And again, there's no, and that's just one very quick snapshot example. But I, I do believe one of the things that we overall need to go is figure out how to be great allies and how to intervene. And again, there's a whole lots of literature around bystander psychological safety of the ally. You know, and as a bystander, I have to look at you and is it safe for me? Maybe you don't want me to intervene right now. You know, so there's lots of discussions um, around that. And I, and then this is another, um, I always add the comp- the component of an accomplice. And this is not mine. I was at a lecture years ago and I heard this. And I would say an ally is great, but an accomplice actually helps you get things done. And so I use and an accomplice and we kind of commonly call it mentorship or sponsorship. But then as an accomplice, how can you get some things done to improve things, get uh, improve things? Again, it's a version of, of being an intervener, but... So shortly, you know, in the three minutes or so, that's kind of, I think of, it's it's, it's very actioning, um, the intervening. Well, and I think that we've been kind of talking about different levels of action and, you know, it's not all the things all the time. I mean, you you kind of got to read the room a little bit and and I like that safety first. I mean, I think, you know, you imagine you're in a room with somebody that you suspect there's domestic violence. Well, you know, you're not going to rip it open right then and there, but you may go back to, and I'm saying the mother because most of the time it's women, although not always, and saying, you know, I just wonder about your safety, but you're not going to do it with who you think the perpetrator is right then and there. That wouldn't be safe. So, you know, how do you, you know, again, read the situation and you kind of got to be a little attuned to what it is. I, the other thing you said something about power and I think that people who are not minoritized don't always recognize that they sit in power and that power sharing and giving it away is also an action. I, I heard another training about being at a, a meeting where, you know, all of the white men were on one side and the black woman was on the other side and an ally literally move seats so that she was in a different seat. And, you know, it was a, maybe a small act, but it shifted, it shifted the dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of get it, I, I guess, get a little savvy and just try and you probably are going to make mistakes. Right. Okay. And, I, and I think the other thing is somebody might want to just start that example. Like, well, I don't know what to do, but again, reading, being, it always start, it kind of always starts with awareness. And 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 the sad thing, the the problem is a lot of times, like you said, sometimes we're not aware. Sometimes we have so many other factors. But being able to, the more we are aware, you know, the more we can hopefully change those dynamics. Be the ally. You know, if someone's not speaking up or someone is over talking someone in a, you can say, hey, you know, Joan, stop over talking Lisa or something like that. Those are things, but you also have to be aware or someone's being dismissive. And, and again, when you say there's a lot of factors that involve, there's cultural factors, there's you no know, hierarchical factors, but I think it really starts by awareness and, 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 and being able to make some small changes or some big changes. You know, if you're at a, if you're in a big leadership position and you, you're looking at this committee or you're looking at this and there's no, there are no people of color, there's no AAPI people, there's no gender diverse people. You need to be also be the person that calls that out and say, okay, why aren't we here? Why aren't those voices here? And don't let, don't sit in the answer. Well, we don't have it mm-hmm. because, because sometimes that's, that that's the simple answer. I had that happen one time. I was frequently complaining about 
why are there no women in these leadership positions? And a leader who is a lovely person said to me, oh, I didn't even notice. I'm like, well, there's part of the problem. And then it was like, well, nobody stepped forward. I'm like, well, why would they when there's no invitation? I mean, it's like, you have to seek this out and make them, make people welcome and that you want them to be part of the party, you know, but to expect that you're going to sit back and somebody is going to come forward when they are not sitting in power. And and then again, that comes back to also that, do I want to be the only one in the room? You know, and so many times we hear that, you know, I'm I'm the only ex, you know, and you fill in the blank and and some and that's uncomfortable. And and again, just sometimes you just like, oh, I don't want to be the only black woman in the room. I don't want to be the only this in the room. And and I think we, but sometimes you have to be because you need to be that voice. But that can also be taxing. There's this whole um, discussion about minority tax and and things like that, but you know, and so that that's also hard, you know, because some people don't aren't stepping up because well, I don't want to be the only person in the room, well, or other people out. aren't stepping up because you don't you you're not going to change anything. Well, and is it is it the responsibility of African Americans to do all the EDI work? Nope. You know, is that is that fair? I mean, nope. h- how do you how do you do this in a way that's not like, well, it's your job to educate me. Yeah. And, you know, because, you know, that that doesn't seem quite fair either. It's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is. And, and that was some of the, you know, a lot of the discussions of the last year and a half is, you know, I, it's not my job to educate. Now, I will sit and have a conversation with you. But it's not always my job to educate you. And, you know, there's Google, you know, but, you know, read a book, read a listen to a podcast. But and if you don't know where to start, I can give you the answers. But a lot of times that sitting, you know, back of saying, because it doesn't feel, again, for somebody, if you're asked to, you know, educate me, then what are you going to do with it? Are, are there going to be some action steps? And so that that be or you just don't you know I just don't feel like that I don't have that emotional bandwidth bandwidth today and so it's 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 very multifactorial you know well and I think in in summarizing kind of what you've been talking about it's you know there's be aware start with that be aware and that's I mean you can do that in lots of different ways be curious be humble. Be okay with being uncomfortable and then do something about it. Just do it. Yes. You actually just summarized an ending slide to one of my talks on microaggression unconscious. It is start somewhere, be humble, be brave, start somewhere. And change doesn't always come easy. And and the, I always, I, I have three slides. I think I always, I've lately been ending with because I have to remind myself that, but also the, those, those are kind of simple steps. Yeah, they're not easy steps, but there's Brene Brown, who I adore, always ends her podcast be awkward, kind, and brave. You know, so yes. yeah, and and you're going to be awkward. It's going to feel it, it, it's going to feel uncomfortable, and it, it is too bad. Yeah. You just got to be uncomfortable. Well, it's not going to kill and, and you. I, well, and what I tell people is, and if I'm in smaller steps, I also share my missteps and things that I've said or continue to do and things I'm working on because I think then you come from a place of I'm constantly learning and improving. And I have one slide that talks about lifelong learning. This is lifelong learning. You know, in, in, in medicine and in any field, we're growing, we're evolving. This is lifelong learning to be better individuals, make, make society and, and uh, better. So that's kind of my approach to it. I think that's a great place to kind of land. And in closing... As a lifelong learner, if you could have gone back and talked to yourself when a resident, you were a resident, what would you what would you say? You thinking about that, I would say be comfortable in my own skin and be proud of my progress. I and and that I w- I didn't always live in that space of being comfortable um, in my own skin, um, and that has taken some time to get used to. And so that's what I, that's what I would tell my my resident self. 
Well, you are doing amazing things. I don't know how you have time to sleep because you're way, <laughs> you're way busy. So I hope you do have a vacation on the horizon because you definitely I am, I, Actually, I'm going on vacation next week. Woo-hoo, um, where are you going? Yes, yes. I have a good friend and we uh, do a, um, we've been doing girlfriend trips before they were a thing. Um, and so we have our, we didn't go obviously last year. So we have our annual girlfriend trip coming up. And where are you going? We are going to Cabo San Lucas. Oh, so pretty. I've never been. Oh, I try to go different places, but we were like, yes, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and and with some just, and it's probably like four or five days with just enough time to get away and recharge and get some sun. But we the, did. When I, was, when I was there, it was like, eh, get up and have coffee. Let's go to the pool. You want to walk on the beach? How about something to eat? Go back to the pool. I mean, it was like doing a lot of nothing, which I think we have a couple. Yeah, we and that and that's the thing. We we um everybody has their role in the relationship. So she kind of plans the activities, not a ton. We kind of maybe do one activity and then you know, but and it just gives us the time. It's a shame, you know, just we're in the same city, but just a chance to laugh and reconnect and then have to figure out what my husband and I were probably looking at doing a trip sometime in the in the summer and, and maybe some some long weekends. So yeah. Yeah. You got, you got to do that. Right. Well, listen, thank you so much for just being in the world and doing all the things you do and sharing your heart. Your patients are incredibly lucky to have you as a clinician, as are your learners. So thank you you so much. Keep keep doing good work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. You're welcome. Take care. I love this conversation with Dr. Lowry, and she is so brilliant, approachable, and just so authentic. And I appreciate her compassion to really make the world a better place for kids. So here are my takeaways. Number one, we all have racial biases. As she said, if you have a brain, you have a bias. It just is. Number two, get in where you fit in. Become aware of your own biases as a place to start. Number three, be curious. This will be uncomfortable. Number four, for our teens of color who are LGBTQ, AAIP, immigrant children, just see them. Use a preferred pronoun. Make sure your staff is educated. Start with affirmations of empathy and be welcoming. Number five, Imagine what it would be like to be in another's shoes. Imagine if you were a child from another country and you were dropped on our shores and everyone speaking to you in a foreign language that you don't understand. How hard would that be? Number six, understand that for our BIPOC brothers and sisters, the talk is a necessity for the safety of their children. This breaks my heart and I didn't even know about it. And this is a reality that many of us have never, ever known. Number seven, make it a part of your practice to ask all kids about safety. Do they know what to do if they are stopped by law enforcement? Share that you ask all of your patients this question. The goal is to get them home safely. Number eight, an ally has your back. We'll see you in distress. We'll acknowledge the wrong, but we'll do so in a way that is safe for you. Number nine, a bystander will act when a wrong has occurred and will intervene. This is not rescue. This is humanity. Number 10, once you know better, do better. It starts with small changes in order to make a big radical shift. Number 11, it is not the responsibility of minoritized individuals to teach or to fix racism. Number 12, We must all be lifelong learners, learning from our history, learning from the wrongs done to others, and learning to see wrongs in order to do right. I hope that this conversation has moved you to think about what you can do to learn more about your own biases and to make some changes in the way that you practice, the way you live your life, the way you see the world. We can all be allies and we can all be the bystander who acts. Thank you so much for listening. If you have time, please rate and review this episode. I would be ever so grateful. 
I also wanted to mention that Pediatric Meltdown was chosen as a top 20 pediatric podcast by Feedspot. As always, thank you for your time, for the work you do, and I hope that you'll join me next week for another conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.